0: 15, John chapter 15, our verses for consideration are verses 1 through 11, John 15 and 1 through 11, and while you're finding your way there at the risk of uh, extending my time, uh, I had a very busy week this week, good and busy in a lot of different ways, but uh, in a unique way, and I want to try to weave a couple of things into it. I have four sisters, uh, they're all kind of scattered out except for two, I've got two that live in Pensacola. One lives in Hattiesburg, one lives in Escatawba, North Moss Point. And my two sisters, they live in Pensacola, one of them, the one that is just older than me, I'm right in the middle, I'm the only boy. I'm not spoiled at all, not, not at all. First thing came out of my sister's mouth, he spoiled her up. Um, my, my mother lives with the sister that is uh, just older than me, her name is Debbie. And one of the reasons that we moved our mother to Pensacola was because most of our family was gone from Gulfport where we grew up and she was getting to the age that just needed to be a little closer to, to folks. But eventually what led to her being at Debbie's house was because Uh, Debbie is a widower, but she was a widower very early in her life. My brother-in-law died suddenly of a massive heart attack while being at a conference in Tampa, Florida. And they had one son, his name is Gabe, and he was 17, 18, when his dad passed away. Well, I got word, he called me, Gabe called me and said... uh, Hey, Uncle Ken, I just want to tell you that I'm going to be ordained as a deacon at my church. And he wanted to tell me about that. And, you know, five hours away is not exactly around the corner, you know. So it was just eating at me. And to be in all transparency for a son who at times has a lot of guilt because mother's so far away, um, I want to be there and be a part of it. So they did something very unique. Their home church is First Baptist Pensacola. And so I turned to Sandra and I said, I think we need to go. Wednesday night, this past Wednesday night, uh, they were doing kind of an interview process and they'll vote on the candidates later on in the week. So Sundays are a little tough for me to get away to go see them. So it was perfect guys timing. So we jumped in the car Wednesday morning and drove five hours. Didn't tell him we were coming. Wanted to surprise him when we came into the room and pulled up to the church. And this is where I want to kind of dovetail a couple of things into it. They had no idea that we were coming, and we wanted it that way. We wanted to surprise them that night, so we walk up, and if you've ever been in downtown Pensacola, First Baptist Pensacola takes up about two or three city blocks. It is ginormous. It's huge. Uh, there, there are certainly others that are bigger, but uh, it's humongous. you know. And I drove up to the church, and of course my heart was towards my nephew in this big moment in his life. But I couldn't help but comparison or thinking about us. I mean, you drive up and it just takes your breath away. I mean, the buildings are huge. The complex is massive. You walk inside and absolutely gorgeous, the best of everything in there. And I don't mean that in a negative way. If God has blessed them, praise the Lord for people coming to know Christ. But then I look at us. And as I'm sitting there and I'm looking around and I'm seeing the buildings and I'm seeing the interior, what are the things that really matter? Is it the best of everything? I mean, is it the most perfect architecture? Is it enough sound equipment that Hudson Ford would flip out if he saw all the electronic gadgets that were in that room and that sort of thing or is it just a group of people that love the Lord and if it took us meeting out in the middle of some pasture or a hay barn somewhere is God any less pleased with us than he is with them and I want you to know uh, just a confirmation in my heart that absolutely not It's never about the things of this world. It's always about the disposition of the hearts of the people within it, two or 2,000. And I want you to know from my heart, and I hope that two other pastors will allow me to speak for them, that we are incredibly encouraged by you. I know weeks and days are going by and months now, and things will go faster now in the next couple of weeks all the way through probably to the second week in January. (laughs) And sometimes impatience comes in, and Lord, I'm here to tell you that I'm just as impatient as the next fellow moving along, but I, I want you to know that from the three of our hearts that we are incredibly encouraged, we see nothing but good, and we are resolute in our hearts and our minds and our souls to keep pushing forward in however God allows us to keep going, whether it be here for years and years and years, whether it be a building program on down the road? I, I don't know, I just step by step, day by day as the Lord provides. And you're here for the Lord, you're not here for the three of us or any of each other for the most part. But I just wanted to remind us just to be careful about patience and be careful about, well, we don't have this and we don't have that. What we do have is the Lord. And what we do have is the truth of his word. And what we do have is a group of people that demonstrate that in their lives. All right, guys, in I, my heart, I am just as subtle as I'm sure the senior pastor at First Baptist Pensacola with I would imagine enough problems and difficulties with more, there always comes difficulties and that sort of thing. But I sat through and listened to my nephew give his testimony, and there was such great joy in that. And when we walked in, and just simply said, hey, we were in the neighborhood, we thought we'd stop by. And to see the joy in my sister's eyes, and then to walk in the room, and my mother not knowing I was coming, either we were coming. And even that brief time, I'm not standing before you without that mother. I'm just not. And you say, well, naturally so. She gave birth to you, yes. But I've got no doubt in my mind that my mother's praying for me continually. And this is difficult to say as much as I had a wonderful earthly father. Without my mother, I'm not doing what I'm doing. All of her life in simplicity of just loving the Lord and watching me uh, watch her life lived out in such a way. First thing out of her mouth after I'd called her a couple of weeks ago and told her what was going on and where we were, first thing a mother was concerned about is, how are things going at your church? And I said, great. And this is another opportunity to dovetail in. I'm the world's worst at saying, well, what's taking so long? Hurry up. And uh, five other the guys that are meeting with me on uh, once a week are probably tired of me saying, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. So I said, well, I, ne- I never understood the difficulty of establishing foundational documents for a church. You know, a transitional pastor goes in and you already have a constitution and bylaws and covenant and statement of faith. You just slide in as long as it's in agreement with you. What do you do with a blank sheet of paper when you don't have one? And so what I'm trying to tell you as a church family is be patient in that. You know, there's two avenues. Somebody said, well, how do you do that? And I said, well, there's two avenues. You take a blank sheet of paper and you say, I'm getting ready to go to town. Or you do a lot of borrowing, a lot of cut and pasting from a lot of other people who have done it and been faithful for you in the past. And so be patient. Those men are meeting, and Lord willing, soon and very soon, first of the year, we'll be able to present to you those things. And oh, by the way, it's okay that six men are meeting and working this out. But in all major decisions, it will be decided by the church, not just a select few folks. And so that'll be presented to you. Walk through, questions answered, what have you. So I said, it's going a lot slower than I thought. To my mother, I said, but that's on purpose. The patience and what God is sanctifying through this work, we pray it be spill over to us and to the generations of the kids that you see in this room. And so hang in there. There's lots of big, big churches. But one day, there's only one triumphant church, and that's every single solitary soul that knows the Lord as their Savior. And to that end, we will always push towards that. Thanks to all the folks, I mean, there's guys coming up here at night that I know have worked real hard all day long, harder physically than I have, and give hours to see just basic things that you take for granted but don't ever think for a moment that the Lord is not noticing the sacrifice. He will be glorified and he will honor that in his name in whatever way, shape, form, or fashion he decides. That has absolutely nothing to do with this morning's message. But I just wanted to share that from my heart. I hope those two things made some sense. I am the true vine. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, I invite you to stand in honor of reading of God's word and ask that you to follow along silently as I read aloud the word of the living God. I am the true, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) still choked up a little bit, sorry. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. That bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified. just reading and accepting. Father, we approach your word in truth. We approach your word with a heart of submission. But all the promises that are here, the peace, the love, the joy, Father, stoke our hearts. Some in this room perhaps need to be reminded of that which they already know. But Father, don't let us miss the dividing line There are fruit-bearing branches, and there are ones that do not. Father, perhaps through this tender metaphor, you want to remind some, if not most of us in this room, the glory of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. But perhaps as well, there's one or two or more in this room that need to take an honest, clear look at themselves And realize they have no attachment to any vine and that they're withered and the risk of not responding to this urging to this drawing is eternal judgment father to that end be honored and glorified come and do for us what we can't do for ourselves give us ears so we can hear this truth give us Mind so we can understand, with the attendance of the Holy Spirit that you granted to us, give us hearts, that we're moved with this peace, this love and this joy, and give us lives to be transformed more and more into the image of your Son Jesus Christ in His name. I pray. Amen, please be seated. Intimate relationship. that can mean different things to different people. In a world that's twisted and distorted the things of God, intimate relationship is one of the most beautiful aspects of Christianity. Not just a relationship of knowing about someone, but an intimate relationship of being in him and he in us. The restored relationship between creator and created beings maintains the transcendence of God, but also equally displays the imminence of God say, so those are big fancy words. The transcendence of God, even in our faith and trust in him, still leaves God where he belongs. He is above us. He is the creator. We are the creation that will always be maintained. There won't be a leveling of the playing field even when we reach eternity. But our relationship that we are able, we are able to say our God, my God, doesn't vanquish or push out his transcendence. So the restored relationship between creator and created beings maintains the transcendence of God, but also equally displays the imminence of God. God is above us, but beautifully and wonderfully, God is with us. And if you know Christ as your Lord and your Savior, he is in you through the person of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's intimate relationship. Not just a cruel and taskmaster creator of all things or we're not as christians i can put it this way we're not comfortable agnostics that we give a nod that there is some created being or something better or higher or beyond us but we can't possibly know him and our finite being of being confined to time and space No intimate relationship is one of the most beautiful aspects of christianity it's one of John's major themes. He begins the gospel in John chapter 1 verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory glory is the only son from the father full of grace and truth. He picks this thought up again in his first epistle in 1 John chapter 1 in verses 1 through 3 when he writes that which was from the beginning which we've heard which we've seen with our eyes which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we've seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. When you think of the intimate relationship that we have, With our Lord and Savior in Christianity, it is absolutely spectacular and beautiful. But immediately when you realize what was the separation that then has been reconciled and that peace restored through the person and work of Jesus Christ, you have to give an honest assessment and you have to cry out, just like the psalmist in Psalm 8, 4, what is man that you're mindful of him and that the son of man, that you care for him. You know, the honest assessment of understanding the relationship that you and I have with Jesus Christ, that intimate relationship is undergirded and founded and strengthened by the fact of the separation that we had prior to that. And the separation and the way that it was caused because of our sin. And the way that we're rescued in that way. And not just the golden ticket to make heaven and miss hell, but a intimate relationship of abiding and walking and living and talking daily. It's intimate and it's needful. So already in chapter 14 and verse 18, Jesus promised not to leave his disciples as orphans. He would come again. I'm not going to leave you parentless. I'm not going to leave you alone in that sense. I'm not going to give you that awful feeling that many of us could think about, an orphan in that sense, of having no love, no peace, no joy around him in a constant familial sense. I'm not going to leave you like that. I am going away. And then in verse 23, he says, Father and Son will make their home in the heart of the believer. Pitch their tent, tabernacle, the presence of the Lord with us continually, which the constant, if you just want to use one thread of a practical way that that works out is, no believer can honestly say ever that I'm alone, that no one can possibly know how I feel, that intimate relationship. And then in verse 26 in chapter 14, the Holy Spirit will come as counselor and teacher. Giving, lavishly giving in the form of an intimate relationship. Now in chapter 15 verses 1 through 11 is one of the most beautiful metaphors that Jesus ever uses. But it is a metaphor. It's a pointed metaphor to describe the intimate relationship between Jesus and his, and I would say, Needs to be accentuated, true disciples. A metaphor is simply a figure of speech in which a word or phrase is applied to an object or action to which it is not literally applicable. So, in other words, it's not a parable in the sense of an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's a metaphor in the sense of describing something, particularly to the original readers, and by implication to you and I, in an agricultural sense, something that is very similar to this intimate relationship between him and all who proclaim to be his true disciples. And so let's just launch into the verses. We look at this and we look at the beauty of the description and we see vines and we see branches and we see abiding and intimacy and that sort of thing. Guys, listen to me. Don't miss what he's trying to describe. This metaphor is like a razor's edge, a dividing line, a sword. I've come to divide the difference between true believers and false ones. So let's begin in verse 1 and the beginning of verse 5 with a declaration of source and sustainer. Can't leave the context We're almost done in the upper room. They're getting ready to leave and head down through the Kidron Valley and up the side of the Mount of Olives. And so all of this is dealt with in comfort, but Jesus wants to describe something that they've already witnessed at one point in that night. One of their own showed himself for what he truly is. He was a betrayer. He was a traitor from the very beginning. It was just suddenly divulged in that moment. So with a thought in comfort and a description of intimate relationship is also an indicator of those who are truly saved and those who just simply say, Lord, Lord, and are pretenders. So a declaration of source and sustainer. Look at verse 1. I am the true vine. Verse 5, I am the vine. This is the last of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Now the word vine there, thats not just a random metaphor. There's something incredibly important that Jesus is trying to communicate to them. It would have been more on the forefront of those eleven still in that upper room than probably anybody else in this room. Unless you're a really good student of the Old Testament. It wasn't just a random thing about another piece of agriculture, about vines of grapes and the plentiful bounty that comes from a true vine. No, that vine is is chosen specifically. In the Old Testament, it's a metaphor for Israel itself, the nation of Israel. Isaiah chapter 5, Jeremiah chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 15. Israel is described by God as his vine or a vine. But it's never in the best of sense. We need a little flavor of this to understand the distinction Jesus is trying to make. Hold your finger there in John 15. Turn to Psalm chapter 80, and let's get a taste of this Old Testament imagery of vine here. Why would Jesus use vine? And even more importantly, why would he use the phrase true vine? So let's look at the way that Israel is described. Again, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 15. But in Psalm 80, in verses 7 through 16 is a pretty good little snapshot that gives you an overall picture of the way God describes Israel, the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel. One of the things you need to understand about Israel is they are God's chosen people. Chosen in the sense they didn't have anything within themselves that made them attractable to God. God set his grace, his covenant with them. And in fact, he secured that covenant by himself, apart from Israel. Through Abraham, through the nation of Israel. God chooses. God sustains. And that crosses over into the New Testament in the same way that you and I are saved. But there was a purpose for Israel. Why were they selected out from the rest of the nations that are on the face of the earth? One thing you may need to understand if they weren't still God's chosen people, here's a little sidebar. Okay? All the Hittites, anybody met a Hittite lately? Anybody? Huh? All the Ites that are in the Old Testament they're all gone by the way are they not but Israel remains on the back burner yes but they're there God wanted a chosen Israel to be a unique chosen race to be a nation of priests that would reach the world for the glory of God and so they're described in a vine in that way creeping and feeling out unfortunately for Israel never in a good light. Look at Psalm 80 verses 7 through 16. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is, in a sense, metaphorical Israel crying out to God. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Uh, You did increase through the Abrahamic covenant in the way that you planned it. Then verse 12. Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They've burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. Now fast forward to John chapter 15, and Jesus is simply saying this, What Israel failed to do, I accomplish. All that God had chosen for them to do, they fell short of Then I am not just a vine in a metaphorical sense. I'm not just the source of all things. I am the completion of all things. In other words, you could put it another way. Chasing after any other source of vitality and life is absolutely a fool's errand. I am the only one that fulfills those things. Israel failed. What Israel foreshadowed, Jesus completes. What Israel failed, Jesus fulfills. He is not just a vine. He is the true vine, the only vine. Those 11 Jews in that upper room, they would have understood that connection. They might uh, might not have understood the depth of completion that he's talking about. That's a great benefit for you and I having the, the canon complete. We can see the whole picture. It's focusing everything down to I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me, because he and he alone sustains, fulfills, and completes all that Israel failed to do. So this isn't just a kind of a mystical, wonderful, uplifting metaphor. There's some incredible truth that Jesus is trying to say. So he's not only the source, he is the sustainer. My Father is the vine dresser. That word vine dresser there that's rendered in English from you and I, it literally means farmer. Farmer. A gardener, in this sense, the vine dresser. Here's the point. The intimate relationship between Jesus and his disciples is one of vitality and growth. Growth. All right, listen to me carefully. At the risk of burning way too many minutes and realizing that food is going to get cold if I go as long as I did last Sunday. Christianity, listen to me carefully, Christianity is not a stagnant state It isn't as though we were lost and were found and were held in a box. It isn't as though we were lost and saved and redeemed, but in some type of mystical holding pattern, waiting for either Jesus to call us home or to return again. As if nothing, all that needs to be done has been accomplished. Christianity is growing, it's vital, it's moving, it's progressing. You're not standing still, you're marching towards something. If I could put it this way, every single solitary believer in this room who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who are truly redeemed by his grace, are constantly and continually growing towards becoming that which God has already declared us to be. Do you understand what I mean? In other words, a Christian that says that I truly belong to Christ and Christ belongs to me, that I am in him and he is in me, that bears absolutely no taste for God's word, no desire to progress in sanctification, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me, you can't possibly be a true believer. This true vine is always acting. It's never dormant. He is the one true vine that is continually. He is the source and his father is the sustainer. He prunes, he clips, he nurtures, he loves. That intimate relationship demands progression. That's what I mean when I say Christianity is not a stagnant state. And you know why I can say that? Listen carefully, transparent moment. For a good 15 years of my existence as a Christian. To be honest with you, I didn't even understand it. Now my easy out is because I was in a culture, in a good church, that didn't foster discipleship. I thought all I needed to do was recognize this holiness, my sinfulness, and my need of forgiveness that comes through faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for not only my salvation, but for my eternity. And so what I did was I just sat and soaked I have no idea the timing in that length of time, but I can tell you this, that which switched on the light that was already contained with me was when someone finally described the Word of God to me, explained the Word of God to me, fed me with the bread of life, and all of a sudden it was like a light comes on an insatiable appetite not only for The word of God but the things of God and the glory of God and the people of God it was just like jet fuel got poured on top of some just some coals that were barely there this isn't just simply a wonderful metaphor that says how much Jesus loves us this is the dividing line and that which should be discernible in your life and in your closest friend's life, and in your church family's life, and in your pastor's life about you and me as we're growing to be that which God has declared us to be. Righteous before his eyes. That demands us with an with a honest understanding of I'm not there in that sense. We're not earning salvation at this point. We're progressing in our salvation. That's what Paul means when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out progress not that I've obtained it yet but I press on to the upward call of Jesus Christ in my life where's the hunger and, the, and the, the desire to be so connected with Christ that you couldn't help but emulate his character and nature in your own so a declaration of source and sustainer I'm the true vine I am the vine there is no other vine in that sense And then verses 2 through 11, a determination of genuine faith. I don't know how many of you have walked through these verses before and really looked at what Jesus is basically trying to say. In a sense, if I could flatten it out very quickly, he's basically saying to these 11, I don't want you to end up like the one you just saw walk out of this room. I want you to know that you have eternal life. I want you to possess an intimate relationship with me that is constantly growing, and is effectual, and is tangible, and you sense it? It grieves me so to see one of the twelve walk out of here, but he's just revealing that which was absent in his life altogether. I'm posing this question to you, 11, and by implication, ladies and gentlemen, to every single solitary one of us sitting in this room. Now there's key words in the metaphor from this point forward. Branches, used six times, There's two categories, basically, and that's the dividing line. That's the description. You have a description of one category, which is productive vine and an unproductive vine. That's simply it. That's the sword of division that Christ brings. You either belong to him or you don't belong to him. You're not in some kind of holding pattern or in a pool of a Christian family or atmosphere that makes me more likely to be saved. You either belong to him or you don't belong to him either are productive or you're unproductive, and it will, listen to me, show. The productive, look at verse 5, what do they look like? Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears, what, much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The determining factor in whether you are truly saved and truly one of his disciples and you are abiding and you do possess an intimate relationship with him, not just head knowledge of who he is, but heart transformation, life transformation now and for eternity is the bearing or the non-bearing of fruit. It's an outward demonstration of inward vitality. I'll say that again. The fruit that Jesus is describing is an outward demonstration of an inward vitality, which then begs the question for most people, if not most Christians. All right, I get bearing something, showing something, demonstrating something, but what kind of fruit are we talking about? Can't does it mean I just have to use every waking moment to do things to help others? So the world can look, look at me as I am acting out in my life outwardly. outwardly. Can you see, I go to church, I pray, I read the Bible, I help the needy. Now listen to me, all those things are good, but that's not the fruit that he's talking about. Because the sad part is Matthew chapter 7 verse 21, when not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my father. And you say do, do means outward tangible things of doing. Yes, there's some outworking there, but that's not what he's looking for. And by the way, that's not what you're looking for. If your heart is quickened at this moment and you're trying to decide, look, I think that I am, I want to be, but what, what is tangible that God can see others around me and I will have confirmation in my heart. Just tell me what the fruit is. That I'll cultivate. That I'll fertilize. That I'll water What is this fruit? Hold your finger there. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Guys, it's never on the outside in isolation from a true semblance of what's going on on the inside. You've heard me say many times already in now two years. One of the worst things that anyone can ever say to another Christian is, you have never, what, changed. You haven't progressed. To be honest with you, my sisters are still flabbergasted that their brother has been called into ministry. And to be honest with you, near about every day I am too. Based on who I know that I really am and the things that I've done, and quite frankly at times, things that I do. But do they notice something? Something that's almost like, as Paul would describe, a fragrance. That isn't, hey, look what I'm doing, but look what I'm becoming. By God's grace, put the pieces of the puzzle together. I'll send you a helper, a comforter. My spirit within you. Listen to me if you possess the Holy Spirit within your heart, he cannot be contained. One of the greatest demonstrations of the glory of God to the world is the fruit of the Spirit coming out of us to a lost and dying world that draws the distinction between productive and unproductive, between lost and saved. So what does this fruit look like? What are we looking for? How is God glorified? What is evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Galatians chapter 5, pick up in verse 16. I want to get the whole context here. But I say to you, Paul says, Walk by the Spirit. He doesn't mean your gait and how quick you can move from one point A to point B. He means the rhythm of your life, your existence, who you are, what you do, where you go, what you're thinking. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. There's that friction, that rub. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, You're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident like this. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22. This is what you're looking for. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another the fruit is this the fruit of the Holy Spirit that is transforming your character and nature more into the character and nature of God specifically his son Jesus Christ because are you noticing that in your life is there a progression in this spirit are these fruit being born this is exactly what Jesus is asking it's not so much from the outside it's from the inside working its way out The key is back in John 15 of this kind of fruit and what it should be shown. Just a little sidebar as you're moving back. The key is verse 8. The key is verse 8. By this you abiding in me and me and you. By this my Father is glorified that you may bear much fruit. And so you're proving to be my disciples. My disciples. Right, can I offer you just the, the most healthy way to monitor this and progress in this? Ask the persons closest to you, do they see these things in your life? Now let me give a sidebar here. We're not looking at perfection in any of these categories. I don't want to lessen it. In other words, you turn to your spouse and you say, do you think I am ultimately loving and kind and patient? And she says to you, um, I'll give you 22% of the time that you are. discernible, fruit bearing is noticed by the ones closest to you, but even more importantly to God himself. One of the great gifts God gives us are the people that are around us to just simply, look, it doesn't have to be some big drawn out thing. It can be before the last light is cut out at night before you say goodnight. Can I ask you something? We've been married 20 something years now, 40 years. Am I more Christ-like now? Than the day we were married. Teenagers in this room thinking that somehow you got to wait till you're 21 before all this kicks in. Ask your father. Ask your mother Do you see things in my life that are indications of the Holy Spirit working in my life by a fruit being born? Now, you're not walking around asking for compliments just to get compliments. It's testing. Paul says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. It's not there to rock you, G-I-M, I don't know, I feel like it today, I don't feel like it today. You want confirmation in your heart of that the truth that Jesus is describing here. If I'm abiding in you, if you really crave that intimate relationship, that you just don't know about me, but that you know me, and you live with me, and you breathe with me, and you're dependent upon me, then you're going to bear fruit like this. It's discernible. Have the tough conversations. Because there's a flip side of that coin. Yeah, branches are used six times in these two categories. That fruit is a determining factor. It'll prove to be my disciples. But then the call is to abide. Ten times he uses it in these verses. Your version may say remain or Continue. It simply means this, to be in a state that begins and continues. A state that begins and continues. I I don't know if some of you are sitting in this room in what I call a dormant state at this point. You come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You've understood about his holiness, your sinfulness, the need of forgiveness. You've been drawn to the Father through the Son, you've responded in faith and trust to Him, and you're just sitting there thinking, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do next. Am I just supposed to wait? Now, I give the illustration of First Baptist Pensacola, and it's big, and you can use any other church's illustration, just the one that was on the forefront. Guys, listen to me. As a word of encouragement, you need to be careful with this. If you're looking to hide and not progress in your sanctification, this probably is not the church for you. One of the determining factors of the encouragement that I have in my heart, if I could just use that as an illustration, is the, is the atmosphere of discipleship. May it continue. And listen to me, At sometimes it's got to be Blunt the antithesis of a culture and a, a feel of discipleship and swimming with a, an overall rhythm of discipleship is to pretend that others around us are in sin and not addressing it because that's going to come to the forefront when we get into our original documents some of us in this room are going to be introduced to church discipline in a way that they've never heard it before i'll leave that just as a tease for further down the road One of the most unloving things a brother can give to a sister or a sister to a brother is allow them to remain in their sin. That's not love at all. That's indifference. all right. That's coldness. That's a careless attitude and a poor understanding of what the church is supposed to be. To be in a state that begins and continues. Robert Mounts, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, said this, for a branch to bear fruit, it must share the life of the vine. Likewise, for believers to bear fruit, they must remain in Christ. That's what Paul means in Galatians 2 verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. My life doesn't belong to me, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I'm in the flesh. I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You can't have a transformational moment Of description of what Christ did for you in that intimate relationship to grant you his peace and then proclaim that you're living in his peace and yet bearing absolutely no fruit to give indicators that you are remaining in that relationship, that you are continuing in that relationship, that you don't fall away, that all the things in this this world that comes at you can't give it to you, can't take it away. We're impervious to that. That's a determination of genuine faith. But there's another side in verse six, that's the unproductive branch. The unproductive branch, look at verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. All right, there's five elements that are laid out for the unproductive branch. It's the ones that are self-deceived, who think that just coming to church will do it or being born into a family that demonstrates some Christianity within it or because I'm in the West or because I'm in the, sun, uh, in the Bible Belt or whatever outside, exterior motive by which you're getting confirmation within your heart that you're saved. Jesus described five elements. One, he's thrown away. In chapter 3 and verse 18, he says that if you remain in your sin, you're condemned already because you rejected the Son of God. He's withered, dryness, no peace, no joy in their life. I mean, that aroma coming out of that fruit isn't just tangible, boy, he is acting really kind or more loving at this moment. There is a fragrance or an aroma that comes out of you of joy and vitality in that intimate relationship. In other words, you're dry and you're withered in the consistent pattern of your life. You're not connected to the vine. You can't possibly. This is the true vine whose desire is to fuel vitality, not choke it off. No, the unproductive branches wither. Jude describes it this way in Jude 12. They're clouds without water, carried about by the winds. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. The example was Judas. Three, three and a half years of walking next to. You want to talk about having a relationship, laying down around the campfire together. But that intimate relationship was never there. Brothers and sisters, or man or woman, boy or girl in this room, is that the description of your relationship? Or do you sense that Holy Spirit within you, that insatiable appetite for the things of God, the, the hunger, the emptiness when it's not routinely there, when a momentary season of dropping off and it feels like you're just you're dying inside until I get a taste of God's word and a taste of God's people. Thirdly, they're gathered this looks back at Matthew chapter 13, verse 30, in the parable of the wheat and the tares. At harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. The fourth one is thrown into the fire. That looks back at Matthew chapter 13, verses 41 and 42. And they're burned, cast into the unquenchable fire. Listen to me. If you are under the mistaken understanding... That the holiness and the wrath of God that comes out of his holiness is like a light switch for you. That you live and breathe and you're happy and merry, but the worst thing that can ever happen to you is when you die, you just flip the light switch out. You could be in a good category that gets to go to heaven, but there's no bad category. My question to you is, what are you saved from? If there are no consequences for your sins, an eternal judgment and punishment that God's word in the best way that it can describe is where the fire is never quenched. It's like the Kidron Valley that continues to stoke and burn continually every day. Listen to me, some of us in this room need to be woke up. What risk is there if all that is is I stop and cease to be? And what is described as annihilationism. That's an attack to the affront of the holiness of God. If he is not punishing his sin, then he is not holy. If he's not holy, then he's not worthy to be praised. If he's not worthy to be praised, he's not God. That's the unproductive branch. But now let's close with the productive branch's benefits incredible. The productive branches benefits. You ready for this? Power in your prayer life. Look at verse 7. Power in your prayer life. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now our health, wealth, and prosperity folks would take that and say your wish and your desires are magically going to be opened up when you just say, hey, I need it. That is not it. It is always in accord with his name. It's always in accord with his word. It is always surrendered to the will of God. It isn't your wishes and wants. It is the desires, the purposes, and plans of God that bring the peace, the joy, the love in any believer's heart and life. But that power in prayer of abiding and walking. I don't know about you, but I want my prayers to work. I don't want prayers that never make it higher than this drop ceiling. You say, well, you mean everything that you pray, you want them to become true, only as they accord with God's will. Working means I want them to enter into the ears of the one of whom I intend them to go. My prayers are not for me. Your prayers are not for you. Prayer is for God and for his glory and do a demonstration of his power and his will. And you ready? It demonstrates itself best when the circumstances in mind in your life are at their worst. That's a true understanding of a good, good father that only does good things in the worst of things and circumstances in this world. It's the heart of the gospel. <laughs> he has no claim on me. The prince of the, of the world is coming. He's got no claim on me. My greatest victory is going to be in my death and my burial and my resurrection. I must die so that Satan and himself, in the power of God could take that which he thinks he's winning and make it the ultimate victory in the purposes and plans of God. All right, listen to me. You need to fold that into all the junk that you and I have to go through on this earthly plane. If I'm abiding in him and he is abiding in me, then quite frankly, the phrase should be, got to be careful, whatever this world has to offer at me, bring it. Because I belong to the one who created it. I belong to the one who sustains it. I, will be, I belong to the one who will make it new again. So everything on this earth can come what may. I belong to a risen Lord and Savior who gave his life so that I would have the power, not only in my prayer life, but in sustaining my life here and in through eternity. All right, The world doesn't possess that. It can't know it. It can't understand it. And so I want my prayers to work in this sense. I want God to be glorified. I want God to be glorified. Because I know that in that glorification is his glory, his joy, and if he's promised to give me his joy, that's the only place I'm going to find it. I can't slide out and have a different path or agenda for my life as opposed to God's. My surrender is to the will of God in my life in whatever way and shape it comes. If he loves you and he's abiding you, that vine dresser is going to prune. Some of you in this room are going through some serious trials. Don't you want to be like James? Count it all joy when various trials because you know it's perfecting your faith. That vine dresser is at work clipping. I'm paraphrasing, but Puritan John Bunyan put it this way you and I were given the opportunity there are many things in our lives that we would change all the difficult bad sad things we would change them Bunyan said this your God who is love would not do you understand the power of that statement there is nothing random going on in mind in your life that the sovereign God of the universe is an ordaining sustaining and directing for his glory and your joy Do you understand that? That's the only thing that gets us through the pain and the suffering. And then in verses 10 and 11, a satisfaction of soul. Satisfaction of soul. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that, purpose clause, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full I don't know about you but I like joy (laughs) you know there's a lot of other options of emotions in this earthly world joy is not one of them nothing that sustains itself what do you do with a God who doesn't need anything or anybody who is under no obligation to give anything to anybody. But by your faith and trust in his son, in surrendering your life to him as your Lord and your Savior, engaging in, nurturing, and walking in this intimate relationship with his son, I'll give you my peace, verse 27, I'll give you my love, in verse 9, and I'll give you my joy, in verse 11. All right? We're in this joyous season careful where you look for your joy I am the true vine I am the one that gives you vitality which side of that coin are you on that productive branch or the unproductive I pray there's not a soul walks out of this building this morning that doesn't know with all certainty I am abiding in him and he is abiding in me. I have peace, love, and joy that goes above and beyond all things in my life. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement. Thank you for the confrontation. Without confrontation, there doesn't come change. Father, we need to look in the honesty of our own hearts. We need to ask the people around us, We need to implore the Holy Spirit living within us. Stir up within me those things that give demonstration of you. Help me to become that which you've declared me to be. If there be one in this room, Father, that wants to change from unproductive to productive, may they heed the call. May they realize that the joy and the peace, that soul searching that they're looking for can only be found in the true vine. Father, I pray that you would do that today for your honor and your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen.